Welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We're recording live at the Science Museum to celebrate the opening of their new Engineers Gallery. The Science Museum has always been one of my favourite places in London, so it was a real treat to do this podcast in partnership with the Royal Academy of Engineering and the Science Museum. We're here to celebrate the opening of the new Engineers Hall to celebrate the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. We're joined today by Becky Shipley, OBE, who is a UCL professor in healthcare engineering. On to today's episode. Becky, welcome to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. What's your job? I am a healthcare engineer at University College London, so I basically try and develop healthcare technologies. And why is there an exhibition at the Science Museum about you? It's a very good question. Um, So the Science Museum, in partnership with the Queen Elizabeth Prize, uh, have developed this gallery to try and um, broaden perceptions around what engineers do and who they are. And um, I think healthcare is one of those areas that people don't necessarily associate with engineering. So I'm really delighted that they've built up as a focus of the exhibition to try and kind of get it in the minds of kids and their parents and the general public that this is a really exciting area. And um, what is an engineer? Essentially, I think, I think if you ask different people, you'll get a different answer. But for me, engineers are problem solvers. So that's very much how I see it. So if you're an engineer, you'll usually have a grounding in subjects like maths or physics or computing. Um, but the beauty of it is that you basically tackle the big problems that we worry about in the world. So for me, it's healthcare. It could be net zero. It could be, you know, manufacturing area. It could be much, you know, all sorts of different areas. Um, and you, you kind of reach in and build on that base that you've got and use those as tools to solve the problems that you're interested in and are important. Because I dare say if you asked a lot of people what they thought of word association game with engineering healthcare probably wouldn't be one of the top 100 responses i don't think it would either and you know i spend quite a bit of time i go into schools for example because this is something that i really care about um and i think you know when you talk to kids in particular about engineering they think of the traditional areas like you know designing bridges or motorsports and you know they're all exciting and important areas you know, if you go into a hospital or even your GP surgery, you see technology everywhere, you know, whether it's, um, you know, an MRI scanner or um, you know, a drip mm. or, um, you know, a blood pressure monitor. All of these things are technology. That's all engineering. So, and all of those tools um, have got foundations in physics and maths and computing. And someone has designed a device or a bit of kit that solves a problem. And that is, that is engineering. One of the things that I'm struck when I go into schools is that you say to people, you know, who wants to go work at Facebook, Google, Apple, etc., and you'll get about half the room put their hands up. And then you say, and who's thinking of studying engineering? And you'll maybe get a couple of hands. Um, what role do engineers have in trying to change that perception? It's a really tough one, isn't it? Um, and I completely agree with you. So I think we've got a really important role in better communicating what it is to be an engineer. And the kind of skills that is associated with, because, I mean, as I said, as an engineer, you're a problem solver, but you get this amazing grounding in maths, physics, like quantitative analysis, which basically underpins so much of life now and the big growth areas, you know, for the country and globally. Um, And of course, it's those kind of problem solving quantitative skills that the big tech companies and AI giants Mm. and everyone in between um, want to recruit. So... 
I think, you know, if you go into engineering or physical sciences in general, you're not limiting your options. You're not, you're not siloing yourself into a particular career at that point, which I think is really important. In fact, you're kind of just opening up a whole world of possibility. Um, and you originally studied maths at university. I did. Why was that? Um, honestly, I just really liked maths. I was, um, I was a pretty um, nerdy teenager, I would say. Um, and I just really liked maths in schools, uh, at school. So I went to an all-girls school. Um, not many girls did um, maths and further maths. I think there were four of us. Lots of girls did, you know, most of the girls that were interested in biomedical, sorry, most of the girls that were interested in science at the time did biomedical sciences or biochemical sciences. Um, and why, why is that, do you think? Yeah, it's a really, it, that's, a, that's a complicated question, I think. I think it's a combination of um, stereotypes around, still around, um, you know, gender stereotypes, mm -hmm. um, which persist. And I think they persist. You know, I've got young kids um, and you see it right from the beginning, you know, even as parents who don't want to project stereotypes onto your kids, you know, they're exposed to the media, they're exposed to mm -hmm. Netflix, they're exposed to YouTube, all this kind of stuff. And that has an influence. It can't not. Um, and I think, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stereotypes that persist within the generation of parents and teachers that that educate your kids as well. So I think there's definitely that there. Um, and I think it also just takes a long time to break some of these mm -hmm. these um, ideas down. Um, I think actually in maths now, there's more girls going into maths. So I think it's up at around 40% at the undergraduate level now, which yep. is certainly higher well, than, yeah, yeah. which is higher than when I was, um, obviously it was quite a long time ago that I went to university, but it was, it's higher than then. Um, but if you look at physics and computer science, I think they're they're quite stubbornly low still, which is a is a real shame. And I you know I think it's quite hard to unpick what why why that's there. And so, okay, I think that's fair, right? It's a big cultural thing that's hard yeah. to unpack. But what's the one thing? What would be the one thing that could be done that would make the biggest difference to improve the diversity? Um. I, I don't I don't know I don't know what the answer is but for me it's changing the perceptions of who does those subjects who's good at them and what you can do if you're trained well in those areas and one of the things of course that we hope is that this um, exhibition at Science Museum will yes, bring it to life exactly. so tell us about you know the you, you were almost political earlier in your answer of not answering why uh, your kind of up on a pedestal with this like what why is it what did you do in the pandemic which just led to there being an exhibition about you and plenty of other people and plenty of other wonderful people yes um so during the pandemic i co-led a team that um designed and then mass manufactured non-invasive ventilators to treat covid patients and we were one of the teams that made it over the line so we got regulatory approval and um, we got a contract we made ten thousand of them um Wow. Um, which went out to over 130 NHS hospitals. And then we did a huge amount of work globally. So we released all of our designs open source so that other countries could use the, make and use the devices as well. They were downloaded in um, over 100 countries. And um, we had a real focus on low and middle income countries. Um, so we helped support manufacturing hubs to be established in about 30 countries where they ended up being made and then used to treat patients. 
and you work with Mercedes on the project, right? And that, you know, it really attracts young people, right? Amazing brands like that, Absolutely, right? And, yeah. you know, um, what, what was the relationship? How did that, that yeah. work? And Yeah, it was fascinating. It was one of these kind of ad hoc things that you probably couldn't have, um, you couldn't have manufactured if you wanted to. But I am based at UCL, University College London. I'm a professor there and I'm in the mechanical engineering department. So in mechanical engineering, we've got a big group that work in health, which is where I am. And then we've got other groups in some of the more traditional areas. So I had a colleague, Tim Baker, who mm-hmm. was a professor there, and he had worked in the motorsports in- industry and kind of engineering design for most of his career. And then had come back to UCL to set up engineering design and teaching. Um, so basically, we were both in the same department now. So I knew Tim really well. I already worked with the hospitals. So um, I was talking to my clinical colleagues around COVID. Um, one of them basically said, I think we need to make non-invasive ventilators. And I was thinking, well, we can do the design work. We can do the regulatory work, but we need a manufacturer. So I reached out to Tim immediately um, because he had those motorsports links because we knew we would need this kind of golden triangle of understanding the healthcare problem, being able to do the engineering and being able to do the manufacturing. Um, and the Mercedes Formula One engineers were formidable, as you would expect. So they were perfect for it. They, the Formula One had just been stood down um, because of COVID. Um, so the engineers were on the bench. Um, I mean, they design, they design, um, you know, the Formula One engines for Lewis Hamilton. So they're they're pretty good at doing kind of gas flow, yeah, um, modelling and um, design systems. So they basically repurposed their whole factory in Brooksworth and ended up making ten thousand of these there. Um, so from a standing start from the first day, within 100 hours, we had made prototypes that we were testing back in the hospital. Within 10 days, we got regulatory approval for the first device. Um, two days later, we got regulatory approval for a Mark II device. And then within a month from the first meeting, um, Mercedes had manufactured 10,000. Wow. That is extraordinary. So how... And when, when were the timelines of this? This was at the beginning of March, was it then? Our first meeting was the 17th of March, 2020, yes. So basically COVID was hitting. Yeah. And um, so I'm at University College London. Um, my clinical colleagues at University College London Hospital, which is one of the really big London hospitals, the peak of the first wave of COVID was due to hit by the Easter weekend. So there was a really short space of time to do anything. Yeah. And um, as probably everyone remembers at the time we had a real shortage of kit in the UK so the the UK basically imports all of its medical kit um so we were really vulnerable because around 80 countries globally imposed export restrictions so unless you made your own stuff you were potentially in dire trouble yeah and which was why the government launched the ventilator challenge at the time um to try and kind of corral the UK manufacturing community to make things locally how powerful do you think the branding of these kind of competitions are, right? The Ventilator Challenge, you know, the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. You know, how, how important are they? I think they're really important because, I mean, I think branding and media are really important because it's that piece around raising the flexibility of the role of engineers in the general public, Um you know, so I don't think at the beginning of the pandemic, if you ask the general public who would be contributing, you think of, you know, doctors, nurses, maybe people do who supply chain management, that kind of mm. thing. But you don't necessarily jump and think, oh, there's going to be a real role for engineers here in making kit, um, which is exactly what happened, at least in the immediate term. 
Um, and similarly with the, you know, the Queen Elizabeth Prize, it's, it's around articulating the role that engineers have in society, which I think comes back to what we were talking about before mm. um, and raising that visibility and communicating it really well to the general public and younger generations to try and attract the kind of best um, potential engineers. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs. One of the ways we make this show possible is through our various partnerships. If you'd like to partner with us, you'd be joining one of the UK's fastest growing business podcasts, reaching over 40,000 listeners every month. We've helped a wide variety of groups tell their story, from the National Farmers Union right through to the FinTech Alliance. So if you'd like to work with us, just go to www.jobsofthefuture.co. To keep up to date with all Jobs of the Future news, you can follow us across all social media, including our TikTok and YouTube channels. And one of the ways, of course, this happened is through the honour system and so on, and you were awarded an OBE. How did that feel? I mean, it was, I didn't expect it. It was, it's a huge honour. Um, and it was wonderful that the work that we did was recognised. So I, you know, that was incredible. Um, honestly, I also just felt a bit, it felt a bit awkward about it because it's an individual prize. And I think, you know, the work that we did, and I actually think, the work that most people do can't be done by individuals anymore you know mm. so we were a team of engineers um you know there was the mercedes teams as well and doctors and nurses who did this together um and you know i spent a huge amount of time in hospitals um on covid wards you know involved in oxygen management at the time and um it was just formidable what those people did yeah, it's pretty extraordinary. It's a good point on like teams. Like, you know, a lot of scientists from history we hold up as kind of individuals, right? And it yeah. was probably easier for individual brilliance then than mm-hmm. it is now. What makes a good team? Hmm. That's a really good question. I, I really care about this actually because um, you know, there's a there's a phrase now which is like science is a team sport. And I, mm. I like that because I think you're right. So traditionally, um some of the big breakthroughs in science and engineering and physics were more about you know discovering more about the world around us and that that could be more of a kind of individual contribution um but i think especially in engineering now it comes back to what i was saying you're trying to solve problems if you want to solve problems for example in healthcare you can't do that as a lone ranger yeah you need to understand what the problem is for a start which means talking to clinicians and patients and um being able to bring together a kind of diverse set of expertise to tackle that um so i think in that kind of team and i think it's why our team worked really well was that we were all equals there were no egos that dominated we all totally respected each other um and valued everyone's expertise equally and you don't often get that i don't think there's often individual personalities and none of us had an agenda beyond trying to do something to help in the pandemic which i think was that was a real thing about the pandemic um at least in the areas that i was working in was that you know whoever you called on if you whoever you picked up the phone to people wanted to help yeah and um that was that was incredibly powerful i think what's the most surprising thing about your job that's a really good question um so I'm a professor at a university and I think most people would associate that with being quite dry. Yes. 
um, not generalizing, but I'm guessing people would. Um, and also, similarly, if you say to someone that I studied maths, most of the time you get a kind of, oh my God, reaction. <laughs> um, but I think what I do is really creative and super exciting. So basically, I go to work every day and I get to spend my time with really smart, interesting people who know, know loads of things about bits of the world that I don't know about. Yeah. And I get to learn from them um, and work with them. And I've got complete flexibility. So, so no one tells me you have to go and work in this specific area and solve this problem. I have the flexibility to go and talk to my colleagues, go and spend time in hospitals, talking to doctors and nurses and patients and understanding the technologies that they want or need. And I have the complete freedom to then try and pull teams together and tackle it. And I think that's pretty amazing. And that's interesting thinking about it from a creative side. Uh, talk to us a bit more about other creativity within engineering. I think engineering, I'm biased obviously, but yeah. I think engineering is probably one of the most creative fields that you can think of because, as I said, it's all driven by solving problems and you don't know what what expertise you're going to need to solve a particular problem. Yeah. So, you know, I go to a hospital, for example, and um, I work in all sorts of different areas. So I've got projects that are looking at how we can better develop imaging tools to identify how tumours grow and respond to different kinds of cutting-edge treatments in the body through to understanding how to repair nerves when they're damaged through to monitoring patients and understanding how all their vital signs give us kind of clues for how they're responding to therapies or if they need to be brought back into hospital or, or you know, it's a, it's a really diverse set of areas and no one of those areas needs the same set of skills. So for one of them, I might bring together a team that's got someone who's like a brilliant mathematician, a biomedical scientist. Um, another one, it might be someone who can do data um, and engineering design and can design a piece of kit, mm. you know, um, so that is really around understanding the problem, talking to the people who actually need the technology and will use it, and then being able to come up with solutions kind of with a blank sheet of paper. Um, and what impact do you think AI is going to have? I mean, mm. you know, it's just what so many people are talking about and the impact on jobs and, and so yeah. forth. What's your understanding of it? It's a big question, isn't it? Maybe um, a big question. So, undoubtedly, it's, I mean, it's having a massive impact, isn't it? So, chat, GTP, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, in health, I would say, um, there's massive opportunity. But there's also, there's a lot, there's a big gap between developing AI, AI tools and kind of implementing them and making a difference to patients. And I think um, that revolution's coming, but it's, it's not going to be maybe as quick as people might think because it needs to be done safely and it needs to be implemented in an effective way and it needs to work with all of our existing systems you know i don't think we're suddenly going to have ai tools which mean that you no longer need a doctor yeah. or a nurse they're not going to replace some of that core um, expertise or skill set because you're always going to need those checks and balances um in place and that experience and that personal interface but undoubtedly, there's massive opportunity to streamline um, um, healthcare provision um, 
and make a big difference to for example how the nhs operates but it's going to take time because it needs to work within our existing systems the classic we can we overestimate what we can do in two years yeah we underestimate what can be achieved yes. in 10 so you know health data is a massive area but and it's a big priority for the nhs for example but you know patient record systems across your doctor you know your gp and your hospital aren't connected for example yeah. So you can have an awful lot of AI tools at your disposal, but actually unless it can be learnt from the right training data sets yeah. and can reach to all of those, it's got limited power. And the data can be um, good enough, right? Because if you exactly. train, it, train it on the wrong data. Exactly. And, so know. there's a big bit, there's a big piece which is really important around how, how you train AI algorithms and make sure that they are representative of the population that you want to apply them to. Yeah. What advice would you give to a younger Becky at school about getting into maths, engineering, science? Just to go for it. So, you know, I, I think it's interesting because I think you talked to a lot of people and they had maybe a prescriptive view about what they wanted their careers to be. And I never had that. And I actually think that was kind of great. So, I, you know, um, I think it's really important to do things that you enjoy and care about. Yeah. You know, I did maths because I just really like maths. There genuinely was no more to it than that. Um, and I guess I was, I think, retrospectively, I look back and I feel like I was very lucky um, that I was supported in taking that approach, you know, whereas um, I think some people, it's the flip side, you know, I want to be a lawyer, therefore I must do X, Y, and Z. Um, yeah. Um, so I would say to young kids, you know, do things that, you're good at and you enjoy both those things that you are interested in you know you care about like that's how I ended up moving into healthcare because I did maths and then you know at uni at Oxford University and I started doing courses where you basically used maths as a tool to describe biology and medicine and I found that really interesting and exciting and I just gradually moved further and further into that space and then moved into healthcare engineering at UCL because I wanted to be totally focused on the problem solving piece and have that position where I was working directly with medics and hospitals and um, UCL as a university is really brilliant for encouraging that. So basically discouraging people from working in silos and encouraging people to have a broader kind of perspective and work um, in, an, in what we call an interdisciplinary way. Um, and I love that. I think that's really exciting. And what would you say to young women in particular looking to get into science, technology, engineering, maths? Obviously, I would encourage them. Um, I would also say, I, you know, I, I do talk to a lot of girls and I think some of the things that they're worried about don't bear out. You know, I've, I think it's this perception thing. You know, this is a perception that you're going to go and work in a male-dominated field, which obviously does have its challenges, but... Um, but, you know, there's there's also huge opportunity and support. And um, as I say, I think what's really important is that you work in areas that you care about. Um, so I would encourage it. You know, I've I've I love my job. I've had um, it's I've always worked in male dominated areas. For me, that hasn't been an issue that obviously doesn't hold true for everyone. I've had huge support. I've been given huge opportunity and um as I said, I get to work in areas that I'm really passionate about. So, so trying to see it as an opportunity rather than a limitation, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And what role does the Royal Academy of Engineering 
play in this mentoring sort of aspect you've talked about? Um, so, so this kind of work is a huge priority for the Royal Academy of Engineering, and you know that's why they're involved in the in the Science Museum and this gallery. So, um, you know, the Royal Academy of Engineering do a huge amount around trying to work with the educational sector, so schools, for example, um, changing the perception of who engineers are, and then supporting those career trajectories as well. So I think the other piece of the puzzle is that it's not just getting a more diverse set of school kids to apply and become, you know, go and do engineering at university, for example, or in other in other career options. It's around supporting those people and providing the opportunities along the whole pipeline. Um, and the Royal Academy of Engineering does a huge amount of work, you know, through the educational and university sectors, but also across industry, for example, um, to try and develop those pipelines and support them. Some quick fires for you now, Becky. Favourite scientists? Good question. Um, Catherine Johnson, she was a black mathematician who worked for NASA and modelled lots of orbital um, trajectories and that kind of underpinned space flight. She was amazing. Wow, that's cool. Favourite planet? Ooh, good question. Um, I'm going to say Venus because my son has just informed me recently that um, apparently Venus is hotter than Mercury even though it's further away from the sun. Oh, wow. Didn't know that. I, no. I, haven't, I haven't checked it. Apparently, oh, right. this atmosphere well, means it's hotter. He's sick, so he might not be right. But. <laughs> so, yeah, that's amazing. Do you think we'll get to um, live in space in our lifetime? In our lifetime. Um, in kids' lifetime. What about maybe in our kids' lifetime. I think in our kids' lifetime, it will be normal to go into space. Or it will be possible. Yeah, okay. Um, when I think of engineering, I immediately think of bridges. What's your favourite bridge? I don't think I know many bridges. <laughs> um, Millennium Bridge. Fair enough. Favourite mathematician? Oh, very good question. Um, Euler. How many decimal points can you get pi to? Oh, not many. I'm actually not very good with um, memory for numbers uh-huh. and or mental arithmetic. But how, okay, how, how many? Can I beat you? Probably go for it. 3.142. Yeah, that's as far as I know. All right. Well, there we are. There we are. That's great news. I'm as, uh, yeah, math teacher will be impressed. Um, favorite book? So I was obsessed with reading when I was a kid. Um, Rebecca Daphne du Maurier. What technology are you most excited about today? And what technology are you most excited about on the horizon? So on the horizon, I'm going to go with, it's very broad, but just any technology that works with data because I think that's going to revolutionise the healthcare system, which I think is mega. Um, right now, um, quantum technologies in healthcare, I think, are going to be massive. Favourite role models? You know what, I was never really one for role models. Um, not like in terms of famous people. Um, individuals that I work with, so people that I had as mentors, like my old PhD supervisor, people like that. And if you were to pass the mic to... Um, another interesting scientist, mathematician, entrepreneur that we should have on the show. Who should we speak to? I'm going to say um, Kathy Hollywell, who is a professor at UCL and she does amazing work in um, disability innovation in for global health. So it's basically things like trying to design um, assistive technologies to help people that are injured in, you know, Delhi, for example. Um, incredible work that they do. 
Brilliant. Becky, thank you so much for coming on Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to Jimmy's Jobs of the Future. We've come a long way since our first episode, when I started recording this on my own in my daughter's nap times. We are now a team that not only pulls together a podcast, but also creates content on multiple channels, whether that is our Substack, looking at the latest trends in business, entrepreneurship, and the future of work, or some of our more lighthearted takes on TikTok. And of course, our best moments are on YouTube. To find all our socials and best content links, click on the links in the show notes below.